When you sing a psalm like that, you can't help but recognize that it is aspirational. There are times when you can say more confidently that you have not strayed from God's path. And taking it as a big picture, every Christian stays on the path or comes back to the path. But we remember that we sing psalms like that because they are prayer. They are prayers to have the heart of Christ, and they most perfectly represent Christ's heart. Now, I do invite you to turn in the Word of God to 2 Samuel, our main passage tonight, coming to us in chapter 6. Give you a moment to turn there, 2 Samuel 6. Now, our narrative centers on an object that continues to fascinate people to make its way into movies and books. And it is an object, if anyone here is so young as not to know it, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. We don't use that term Ark frequently now. But basically, it's for us a Hebrew term, comes from a Hebrew term that means a box. And generally, it was made of wood. But in the case of the Ark of the Covenant, it was covered in gold. And affixed to the outside were strong rings of metal which they could slide poles through, and the purpose was to keep anyone from touching the Ark of the Covenant. Because through the duration of the Old Covenant, God set about to strike down with death or disease anybody who laid a finger to that Ark. And yet we're going to see in spite of that peril, David is going to go to great lengths to bring that Ark into the city where he lives, to the capital city of Jerusalem. It raises the question, why does he want it there? We're going to see that the reason connects very much with the way that we approach the Lord and why we should want to be in his presence. Now, having said that, we're going to read, beginning at verse 1, all the way down through verse 15. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, for, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because, beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God, 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our gleanings this evening. Our Father, we pray to you that you would illumine our understanding, give us attentiveness, mold and fashion us through this passage of Scripture. And we pray that as we look upon what it means to be in your presence and to have the access that we have received in Christ, fill us too with joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to say, when was last time? But maybe I'll phrase it this way. Has there ever been a time in your life where something touched you so profoundly with joy that you felt compelled to dance with all your might in front of everyone. I would imagine for a lot of people, we have never even experienced that kind of joy before. But that is what David felt. The feeling that the ark was coming to Jerusalem, the feeling after it had made those six steps, and it looks like, okay, this time it's going to work, the relief, and he begins to dance. And not only to be filled with joy, but to be struck with humility. This is a king, and he puts on the simple linen garment of a common worshiper. He says, when it comes to this, I'm like everyone. And not only fills him with humility, but it fills him with a sense of gratitude that rebounds into generosity when he sacrifices this ox. When they sacrifice an ox, Bear in mind, it costs a lot, especially then. And not only does it cost a lot, but they don't just take the meat and throw it all in the dumpster. It's spread among the community. The people revel with the Lord in his goodness. And so David feels compelled to generosity, humility, and joy when he considers the ark coming into Jerusalem. Now, why did it have that effect upon him? You need to understand this because it's going to then connect with how we look upon Christ and what he really is for us. Why did the ark have that effect? Well, it has everything to do with the fact that the ark communicated the presence of God to Israel in covenant. The ark communicated God's presence. And I want to be clear about this, especially for the younger people here. On the one hand, we believe that God is omnipresent. And when we say that God is omnipresent, well, he's not made of physical stuff, so he's not diffused throughout the world. It's not that he has a lot of tangible stuff. When we talk about God being omnipresent, we're saying that his providence touches all points at all times. His power extends to all things, though he transcends all things. God is omnipresent. However, the Bible often speaks in a different way about God's presence. That is, he makes his power and his attributes known more or less and differently in different places, at different times to different people. 
And here, the ark is associated with God manifesting his presence in power, and it's associated with his covenant. The ark, it's important to understand, was not just a symbol of heavenly realities. And we will come to Hebrews chapter 9, where the author explicitly states that the ark symbolized heavenly things. It's true. The things in the temple symbolize heavenly realities. But the ark was more than that. If you want to think of it this way, it is the earthly coordinates of God's heavenly throne. As if he had coordinated his heavenly throne to a place on earth, where is God's presence most manifested during the Old Covenant? Wherever the ark is. And the reason for that is because it's serving as the footstool to his throne. It was common in the ancient world that you have a throne elevated and there'd be a kind of footstool you walk up to the throne like a stair. And here you've got this box and it is the footstool. Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all kingdoms on earth, you have made heaven and earth. And that's the point of the angels that were formed to be on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, to signify the invisible reality that's coordinated to the visible reality of the Ark. The Ark represents the mobile throne room of God, hence it was put into the Holy of Holies. Now, when you think of it that way, what does this mean for David? On the one hand, God's presence can mean tremendous blessing. Tremendous blessing, and that's illustrated in our passage with the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Here's a foreigner, a stranger, not a Jew. He's a Gentile, he's a Gittite, and he is living in the land, and this happens to be where the ark breaks down, as it were. The cart breaks, and it's here. And perhaps, it's a, it's a sad thing if this is what happened there, but remember how when the ark ends up with the Philistines, everybody in the Philistine town starts getting plagues? Well, when the ark gets stuck somewhere, what do they do with it? They leave it with Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Leave it with the Gentile. And what does the Lord do? pours out blessing, because this man wasn't trying to abuse the ark. He wasn't like the Philistines. He wasn't doing anything wrong. And the Lord says, well, if this is where you plant my presence, I'm going to bless him. And it doesn't tell us in what way he was blessed, but it made its way back to the king, enough that David says, I want the ark. Bring it here. And so I imagine it just during those weeks and months as the ark is in Obed-Edom's house, all of The women sing more beautifully. All of the men are stronger and open all the jars without complaining. Everybody is now getting along better. The calves are growing up and they're twice as fat as you would expect. The milk tastes better. Everything is going well in the house of Obed-Edom. On the other hand, the presence of God can be extremely perilous. And that is also illustrated in this story. Uzzah touches the ark. There's no indication that Uzzah was a bad man. He's one of David's mighty men, somebody that David trusted. And when he's struck, David surely is grieved. This was a godly man. But Uzzah touches the ark and he's struck down. Yet for all the danger, we see David wants the ark. And what does that signify to us? And this is our major lesson in 2 Samuel chapter 6. You could draw many things from this. 
But the major lesson in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, is that the privileges of dwelling in God's presence in covenant outweigh the perils of approaching him. The privileges of dwelling with God in his presence in covenant outweigh the perils of approaching him. And we're going to see that even beyond that, see, that alone means that it should be worth it to you to do anything if possible to be at the foot of God's throne. But in Jesus Christ, the Lord has given us such a better point of access that no one should hold back. Everybody should stream forward to approach the Lord and to receive from him the blessings that come in being with him in covenant. Now, as we consider this together, we are going to look at it under three, or rather two main headings. First, why did God make the ark perilous? Maybe that's a question you have. What's the purpose of that? And then second, How does God give us a better point of access? How do we connect the Ark of the Old Covenant to the realities of Christ in the New Covenant? Lord willing, in all of this, the result will be, and this is what you should be praying for yourself and for others as we hear these things, the result should be similar to what David experienced. Joy, humility, generosity. Should have the same basic effect to one degree or another as God blesses. Let's deal with the first question. Why did God make the Ark perilous? It's supposed to be a picture of blessing, right? Why does God attach peril to it? In a word, it's this. And children, you you pay special attention. What is the point of that ark killing people? By the way, I don't at all think that this is a myth. I absolutely believe it's historical. I think you should as well. I think there are reasons for that. This sermon will not go into them. But this is not just like a, a mythical life lesson here about don't touch certain things. It was actually perilous. And why did God make it so? It was to underscore the danger of approaching God's throne without having dealt sufficiently with our moral obligations represented within that box, as we're going to see. Without having dealt with the fact that we are sinners who have violated God's law. And so we ought not to approach his throne until that has been dealt with in a satisfying way. Now remember what was inside the ark. And maybe you don't know what was inside the ark. There were just a couple of objects. There was Aaron's rod, which budded. And then there was a jar of manna, the bread of some sort that fell down from heaven miraculously. But then most memorably, what is mentioned the most frequently in the Old Testament as being inside the ark are the tablets of stone that were engraved by Moses with the words of the Ten Commandments what we sometimes call the moral law, a summary of the moral law. Now, I want to be very clear. The moral law has always existed. It did not begin when Moses wrote it down. It was summarized at Sinai, but it has no beginning or end because it's a manifestation in this realm of the eternal character of God. It has no beginning, nor has it ever or shall it ever be repealed as the standard of conduct and godliness to which we are called. That has not been taken away by the new covenant, this duty to walk in godliness as summarized in the commands. Jesus came to fulfill them, but he didn't mean to erase them as a moral standard. However, from the time of Moses... And specifically at Sinai, when God makes what we call the Old Covenant relative to the New Covenant. It's called the Old relative to the New Covenant. 
It's not to be confused with the Abrahamic. We're not going to get into much of what we could here. But from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, God invested the law with an additional set of functions that were distinct for that time. It worked in a special way during that time. It came to be the epitome of the covenant that God made with Israel as a nation, wherein he promised, he covenanted to grant them life and blessing in the land if they kept what was written on those tablets. Hear what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. God declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. Right there, we have to make a distinction. The Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, there are a lot of different names for the same thing, is an administration of the one underlying covenant of grace, God's redemptive purposes through all time. There's one way that people, sinners, are going to be saved in all times. But on the other hand, there are distinctions between what God promised to Abraham 430 years before and what God now does with Israel, where he says, God declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the covenant, and the command is perform them. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, it says. Which means that for Israel, under the old covenant, these were not just things which you ought to do. These were very much operating as the condition for whether or not they could remain in the land with blessing. Somebody raises their hand and says, uh, but nobody can do that. You're already ahead of me. That's part of the point. Nobody can do that. But you need to understand this is the way, that this is the principle that is embedded within the Old Covenant in a way that's distinct for that time. Leviticus 18, verse 5, the New Living Translation of the Bible draws this out particularly clearly. Leviticus 18, 5. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Cursed is everyone who doesn't actually do these things. It's not enough to say, yeah, we ought to do them. God's good and we're just so glad he's gracious. No, under the old covenant, you must do them. Jeremiah 11, verse 3, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers and do everything that I commanded you therein. It could not be more clear. Under the old covenant, Israel as a nation and the individuals were told, your right to be in the land is covenanted on the basis of your obedience. This is so important to understand that Paul goes into a great explanation of this in the book of Galatians. Really, the entire book of Galatians deals with this. But in chapter 3, he puts it this starkly. Verse 11, Galatians 3. The law, they're clearly speaking of the Ten Commandments, functioning as a covenant for Israel relative to the land. The law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. He's saying there are two competing principles here. When God came to Abraham and gave him a promise for himself and his offspring, it was simply believe. But when he comes to Israel, he says, now about that land there, you have to obey. What is the purpose of this? It's not, again, to say that it was not a gracious covenant. 
There was certainly grace in the sacrificial system pointing forward to Jesus Christ, being a sacrament of the fact that God forgives, pointing them back to the promise made to Abraham that was purely of grace, rooted in Jesus Christ from the time of Genesis when God told Adam and Eve that son of the woman would be born, who would crush the head of the serpent. But the way that the Old Covenant did so in particular was by acting, in the words of Galatians, as a hard tutor, a schoolmaster. And that probably means less today, because from what I hear, back in the day, the schoolmasters were pretty tough. They might hit you and things. I'm not condoning that, but recognize when Paul says, the law is a schoolmaster, he was using a phrase that people would understand, this is scary, this is painful. And what is the lesson of the law? It's driving everyone to a sense of need for a mediator. Someone who can present an offering to atone for their sin. Someone who has a right to approach God. Now let's connect that to the ark in particular. How did the ark serve that function under the old covenant? On the one hand, it's gracious because it shows that God wants to dwell with his people. He wants his throne with his people. That's gracious. On the other hand... Inside that box, barring your route to the Lord, is a statement of everything you don't do. And standing in a place as a covenant of life. And how then do the people approach the Lord? They do so through an intermediary. The Lord appointed, it wasn't an invention of the Jews, the Lord appointed that there would be a high priestly system. And the high priest alone could approach that ark once a year. And he went in with trepidation. He went in trying not to slip or fall. He knew if I touch that, I'm in trouble too because at the end of the day, I'm symbolic. I'm just a man. And what's he go in there with when he goes into where God's glory is at? He goes in with blood from a sacrifice to pour the blood on the lid of the ark. And that lid was called in the Old Testament the mercy seat, the place where the mercy is gathered And what's the purpose? In effect, ritualistically speaking, it's to obscure the view of God who's seated on the throne from looking at the law as a covenant of life. It obscures that so that the people can approach God confidently, so that they can approach him, those sinners, as those who are received. And so it's pictured in that way in the ark. On the other hand, if anyone dares to touch that thing who's a sinner, they have to be struck down. It's an object lesson in the peril of approaching a holy God. That raises a question for you. Sooner or later, every single person here will come into the throne presence of God. Much more so than even being a high priest going up to that ark. You are going to the throne presence of God. Perhaps soon, perhaps this week, perhaps soon in 20 years and you'll find... That was quick too. But we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Do you sincerely dread to appear before him without a proper covering for your sin? If you have never experienced that dread, if that's, that's in me now. I have confidence in Jesus Christ. But when I imagine what it would be to appear before God without Christ, that is a fearful thing. And that's a great indication, by the way, that you are understanding the character of the Lord, that you are growing in grace when you have this conviction. The last thing I would ever want to experience is God without covering. And if not, I declare to you, I want to 
on the basis of the word, it will go worse for you than it did for Uzzah. He died at that point physically, but for all we know, he was a, a perfect believer and he was received immediately into the grace of the afterlife. And God made an object lesson of him. I don't pass judgment on Uzzah for the fact that he touched the ark. And yet for all this, we see David desiring to bring the ark to Jerusalem, even with the peril. And that raises a different question. Why does he want it? As I said previously, because he regards the privilege of God's presence as being worth the peril. And I go even further. David, by God's design, prefigures Jesus, right? He, in different ways, prefigures Jesus. And here, their king, their anointed king, is desiring to bring the presence of God and the throne of God among the people of God. And so he's a picture of Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if today you could have a kind of encounter with the Ark of the Covenant? Just with kids going to RYS recently, they had a different kind of Ark encounter. And they spoke about how it was so meaningful to go see and just see the scale of it. Imagine if the Ark was still around. History does not tell us what became of it. There are all kinds of theories, of course, and I'm virtually certain. They're all wrong. Wouldn't it be nice, though, to have that? Wouldn't that bolster your faith if archaeologists announced, we have found the ark, and I am sure of what would happen. People would start booking flights to build up their faith by going into the presence of the ark, just like they do for other things in the world, other icons or parts of Christian tradition that they think, if I'm just near that, that'll confirm to me my faith. But here, this brings us to our second and final main division. Has not God given you something far better in Christ? A better point of access? And if he has, he's calling you to come to him. Not just once, but daily, hourly, moment by moment. Now, we need to set the gospel specifically in light of the ark. Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, really the whole book of Hebrews, but 8 and 9 in particular, begin to break down ways that Christ is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. And it mentions the ark in particular as one of these symbols. Let's just, not necessarily a particular order of importance, but let's work through some of the symbolism and connect that to the gospel in Christ. No one who's a sinner can approach the law when it's acting in that place, barring the way to the throne of God. But what is the gospel? It's that God himself has entered space and time, put on our nature, not just our physical flesh, but as a true human soul, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, that he does so not for his own sake. He didn't need to. He wasn't looking for experiences. He wasn't on some kind of tourism of other ways of living. He's there for his elect. He's there for those who will, by God's grace and time, come to believe. And he fulfills the law perfectly. What's the summary of the law? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he does it perfectly so that he alone of all humans who have ever or will ever live in this fallen state of affairs has a right to approach the box. Unlike Uzzah, unlike you, unlike me, he could put a hand on it and everybody gasps and he doesn't die because he's righteous. 
And that means that he can come to it with what we need and once and for all deal with our sin. When he comes to the ark, he doesn't come with the blood of bulls and goats. He comes, as it were, to the very feet of his father at the throne, and he pours out his blood. Turn with me and look at Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see how this is explained there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 and following, it says, It was necessary for the earthly copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. And he's speaking here about sprinkling with the blood of sacrificed animals. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is the obedience of Christ and the life, the very death of Christ. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you look back up a little bit, verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now the new here is with respect to that made at Sinai, not with respect per se to the Abrahamic covenant. Christ is coming in fulfillment of the same essential hope and promise, but relative to the Sinaitic or the Mosaic Covenant, it says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. His death redeems us from all the violations of those commands. You say, well, I was never under the Old Covenant. I was a Gentile born long after the Old Covenant was done away with. But in principle, we were in Adam brought into the same kind of covenant, a covenant of works. Do this and live, Adam. Do the right thing and you can stay here. Show that you are a rebel against the moral authority and order of God and you will not. In this way, Christ has taken the law and he hasn't thrown it away but he's taken it out of a position where it can stand to condemn the one who believes on Jesus Christ. And instead, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, he takes it and by the Holy Spirit engraves it into our very hearts. So that now, if you desire it all to obey, not to earn, but to love, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. And I know you wish at times for more evidence of the Holy Spirit, but give credit to God where it's due. The fact that you desire to obey him not to earn, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what else was in the ark? I want to deal very briefly with this. Aaron's rod which budded. And what a wonderful thing to see. 
again, if somehow it was found and we knew it was the real one, I would want to see it. Of course, I'm human. I'd want to see that rod because it was dead and then God made it come to life. If you're not familiar with the story, go find it after the service and read it. And that was for Israel a sign of the death overcoming life effusing power of God towards his people who were his branch. And especially in the time after David's kingdom seemed to fail and the branch of Jesse seemed to be uprooted and dead, it must have been of great comfort to God's people to remember that there was a rod that budded. But then it disappears historically. And you might think, it'd be nice to have that. But do we, has it hit you yet what it's analogous to? Do we not have a resurrected Jesus Christ dwelling at the right hand of God the Father on high? He's not a stick. He's a real man. And the life that came back to him was more than some olive buds, or almond buds rather. It's the very life of a human who was dead brought into the fullness of glory. And that is the assurance to God's people and to you that God raises us up from all death, spiritual and physical. Within the ark was a portion of manna signifying God's ability to provide supernaturally for our tangible needs. In the book of John, Jesus says, I am the bread who has come down from heaven. Any man who eats of me shall never hunger again. We have been given such a better point of access in every way that there is no need for the ark, and the same could be applied to the other relics of the temple. Hear what it says finally in Jeremiah 3, verse 15. Written some about six and a half centuries, similar to Isaiah, before the time of Jesus, Jeremiah 3.15 prophesies concerning the new covenant, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. As I said this morning, the Old Covenant speaks of new covenant realities in Old Covenant terms. And we are being gathered to a holy Jerusalem, to a heavenly Mount Zion. And we don't need that old ark. We have Christ. He is the point of access. And he doesn't simply say, stay down there. He says, come up and sit next to me to reign. And yet we have a hard time making decisions about the most petty of things. But we are going to reign with Christ. Ought that not to ennoble the way that we live, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we look upon fellow believers. Previously asked you, was there ever a time that something filled you with joy such that you wanted to dance with all your might? If it's not this, I can't imagine anything else that would, that you are deeply loved. And I encourage you, go to the Lord and go to him again and keep going until you have arrived at his throne Go in prayer and plead with him. Help me to see what is given to me in Christ. 
Ask him to give you that joy, which is a spiritual gift. Ask him to give you the humility and the generosity that comes from it. May God grant it to us. Let's ask for it even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving to us this account from David's life. We ask that you would please work in us a a renewed sense of admiration for the generosity that you show to us in bringing us to you in glory. At this time, perhaps some of us feel very little of that joy, and the enemy loves to rob us of that joy. Or perhaps we have tried to satisfy ourselves upon the things of this world that taste good but make us miserable in stomach and heart. And so it's hard for us to digest and to receive the sweetness of the gospel this evening. We ask that you forgive our wanderings and bring us back to you, knowing that you welcome us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.